welcome to the Tech Banter podcast. We love yakking about techs, so we've invited a range of tech experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of TechSec. I'm Michael Messner, a senior tech trainer with Tech Banter and your host of today's podcast. If you're wondering where our host, Robin Jacobson, is today, she's on the other side of the microphone as a guest. To shake things up, today I'll be hosting the show and Robin will share her insights on the political and policy landscape following the recent federal election. Robin Jacobson is a senior text trainer with TextBender and has been a professional trainer for 22 years. She's a regular conference presenter and has more than 25 years experience in the profession, initially in public practice. Robin is a fellow of both CPA Australia and Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand, a Chartered Tax Advisor of the Tax Institute and a registered tax agent. Robin regularly consults with the Treasury and the ATO on technical issues. As many of you know, Robin is an avid advocate of the profession, sits on a number of committees, is regularly quoted in the media and is also a social media commentator, blogger and regular host of Taxiac. Robin, welcome to Taxiac. Thank you, Michael. It's um, nice to be on the other side of the microphone. I think you just took my line. Yeah, and it, I have to say it comes natural. Um, I understand why you enjoy uh, doing these podcasts. Look, we're having a bit of fun with it, but um, yeah, let's uh, shake things up and uh, switch things around for this episode. That's right. And I'm going to throw you a curveball right away from the start. Robin, it's been an amazing election outcome in terms of uncertainty and everyone in the polls got it wrong. Um, just walk us through, what does this election outcome mean in terms of um, government, uh, future government, Senate, House and um tax legislation over the next few years. What are your thoughts? Look, it was a remarkable result on Saturday the 18th of May, not because it was such a dramatic win by the Liberals, but because no one was expecting it. And a lot of the reaction has not been because it was so different from what we had before. If we go back to the 2016 election, they had a a representation in the House pretty close to what they'll end up with now, and I'll go through that in a minute. But I think the the biggest issue is that it was going to be a a predicted Labor win, and so for there to be a majority coalition government is certainly not what the polls or the punters were predicting. That's right, and I think even um, Sportsbet believed uh, the Labor Party that was issuing and started paying out about $1.5 million worth of bets. So who would have thought? They did. It was very keen of them. That's right. So, so look, we're recording this on the 27th of May. So I'll give you the figures as it looks today. And bear in mind, we've still got some seats in doubt. And, and this could well change over the days and weeks ahead. But the way it's looking at the moment, in the House of Representatives, there are 151 seats. Now, being a general election, we had a complete dissolving of the lower house. So that means all 151 members have to uh, either recontest their seats or if they're not standing, then new candidates stand. So there remain two seats in doubt in the House of Representatives. That is the seat of Cohen and the seat of Macquarie. And in Macquarie, it's a difference of just 61 votes at the moment. So um, there will definitely be a, a recount of that particular seat. So where it's expected to land is the coalition should have 78 seats in the lower house. They only needed 76 to form a majority government. So that will allow them to put up one as a speaker of the house and certainly still have at least a spare sitting there. Labor expected to land on 67 seats. The Greens, Adam Bant with one. And then there will be five independents and that will be Helen Haynes in the seat of Indi, Bob Catter, Rebecca Sharkey, 
Zali Stegall, who infamously has now uh, toppled Tony Abbott from his seat in Moringa, and of course Andrew Wilkie from Tasmania. Into the Senate, which is really where the business happens, there are 76 seats in the Senate. Now those uh, 76 seats comprise 12 from each of the six states, and then the territories, ACT and the Northern Territory, have two each. Interestingly, when we go to a general election, there is ordinarily a half-Senate election. And many of you will remember back in 2016, there was a double dissolution. And that means that both the House and the Senate were completely dissolved. But this time round, the Senate is actually still in existence. It hasn't been dissolved. And this time round, we only had 40 seats up for re-election or being contested. And that represents half of the state Senate seats and four seats representing the territories. So the territory senators, their terms ended on the 17th of May and their terms will basically uh, always be in line with the House of Representatives term, that is every three years. However, the state senators operate on six-year terms. Half of them are up for re-election this time, and as a result, half of them will change over. But their terms change on the 1st of July this year. They're not in sync with the House of Representatives cycle. So the results in the Senate were expecting that the coalition will land on 35 seats, Labor 26, the Greens 9, and the Independents 6. Now, given you need a majority of 39 votes in the Senate in order to pass legislation, if the coalition lands on 35, they're only going to need another four votes. And this is quite significant from the previous Senate we had. Previously, we had 11 independents and the government needed nine of their votes. And we know how difficult that was for them to pass their legislation and get policy enacted. This new Senate, given that we're likely to end up with the uh, coalition on 35 and only six independents, they're only going to need four votes out of those six. And if we break the independents down even further, Centre Alliance will have two, One Nation will have two, Jackie Lambie and then Cory Bernardi will make up those final two seats. Now, Cory Bernardi leans to the far right, so you'd expect him to vote with the government in most cases. One Nation tends to be more right-leaning, so again, uh, could be expected to vote in accordance with the government. Uh, the Centre Alliance is more centred, but it's considered that they are reasonable senators to deal with, and I'm referring to Sterling Griff and Rex Patrick from the Centre Alliance. Now, that leaves Jackie Lambie as really the unpredictable one. We're not quite sure which way she's going to vote, but certainly it would seem to be a much friendlier Senate than was the case leading into this election. Thank you, Robin. That is an interesting outcome, and we are obviously looking forward to uh, several um, changes coming through Parliament uh, that probably have been sitting and waiting for the last few years. We know we recently had some legislation that um, was kick-started in 2015 and took many, many years to come through. Um, my question to you then is, when does Parliament actually resume, and when can we expect some of those measures to be passed? Look, that's a really good question too. And of course, when the House is dissolved, any bills that are sitting before the lower house, they do lapse. And the reason for that is a bill that is sitting before the lower house, which lapses with the calling of the election, it can't be carried over to a new parliament. So any bills that were before the house have to be reintroduced if the government decides they want to proceed with the measures in those bills. But interestingly, if you look at the Parliament House website, it categorises the bills into two types. There are 
180 bills where they are described as bills not proceeding. Now, in the main, these bills were before the House of Raps and therefore have technically lapsed. But it all can also include a private member's bill that is not going to proceed. Or, in fact, it also includes one of the bills that was negatived last year. And that was the bill relating to the corporate tax cuts for the big end of town. And you may recall that it was a a measure that the government was unable to get through the Senate, that is providing tax cuts to those companies with a turnover of 50 million or more. So that bill was negatived and it actually falls into this type of bills not proceeding. But then there's another type of bill sitting on the website where it's described as bills before parliament. And these are technically the bills that are still before the Senate. And because the Senate has not formally dissolved, they are currently still before the parliament. But interestingly, those bills will lapse the day before the 46th Parliament resumes. So we're yet to get an actual sitting date, and that will be advised by the government in the next few weeks. But once the 46th Parliament does commence, then any bills that were sitting before the Senate will actually lapse, and then similarly they would need to be reintroduced by the incoming government if they want to proceed with the measure. Now, as far as sitting dates are concerned, there is a period of 41 days after polling day where the writs have to be returned. Now, currently, if you look at the Parliamentary House sitting days, it shows there are no further sitting days this calendar year. Uh, That's clearly not going to be the case, but it was all wiped clean once the election hit. So prior to the election, there were some scheduled weeks in June, the first week of June, and that will be cancelled or has been cancelled. We've then got weeks that were scheduled for the third and fourth weeks of June. Now, it's all going to depend on when they can return the writs, and that depends on how quickly they can count the remaining outstanding votes. That includes things like postal votes and um, some of those absentee votes. If Parliament can resume this side of June 30, then there is a possibility, yes, we could see some sitting days and the government may be able to secure some measures through Parliament in this current financial year. If that is not the case, however, there are no sitting days generally in July and the next sitting date that was previously scheduled was the 12th of August. So we could be waiting another couple of months yet before we see any movement on legislation again. That's a long time from now and uh, it makes us obviously wonder what will happen. Will the government introduce retrospective text changes? Um, I think nobody amongst our listeners is a fan of that. Having said that, before we talk about um, changes we're expecting to be implemented sooner and later on, um, I just would like to ask you about a couple of measures that um, the opposition was bringing to the election and what do we think um, we might see again amongst those measures and which items do we think will definitely be not not be making a comeback? Look, absolutely. And uh, clearly some of Labor's proposed policies were quite divisive. Um, It seemed that everyone in the country had an opinion about negative gearing and franking credits and the CGT discount, just to name some of their big policies. So... Look, taking some of these uh, one by one, the policy to limit the cost of managing your tax affairs to just $3,000 was not well received by the profession and uh, would suggest not by some of the taxpayers as well. Uh, Clearly that will not proceed under a coalition government um, and there are many reasons why this policy was perhaps ill thought out and, and may not have been targeting those that they really had concerns about. It was based on very few taxpayers who seemed to be doing the wrong thing And I think many accountants are relieved that this policy is not proceeding. I think there were also some announcements in the industry and and market leaders announcing that um, potentially free tax returns could be bundled up with uh, uh, bookkeeping at a cost. Have you heard something to that, June? 
So there could be a whole lot of management accounting fees, but virtually no cost for uh, preparing tax returns. It's an interesting one, isn't it? That might be the case. As long as it's arms length pricing, um, I think there's an argument for um, menu pricing. So interesting, that's for sure. Now, look, I can't see the point of going back to revisit the policy in detail and, and explain why um, there were lots of problems with it, but suffice to say that one is not proceeding. Uh, two policies that really go hand in hand, the proposed changes to negative gearing to limit it to new housing and the halving of the CGT discount. Both were proposed from 1 January 2020. Both were going to permit grandfathering of existing assets or existing investments, and neither of those will proceed. So just to uh, let everyone know where we stand with this, of course, there are no changes to either negative gearing arrangements or the CGT discount. I think a lot of taxpayers will be very relieved to hear those. And also it means for many of our loyal listeners out there that um, our structures will remain the appropriate structure, everything else being equal. That's a big sigh of relief. Absolutely. And look, if you dovetail that with another measure that was going to significantly impact on structuring, is, as you just mentioned, uh, the proposed minimum 30% tax rate on distributions by discretionary trusts to adult beneficiaries. Uh, that was going to require a significant amount of uh, thinking and analysis and, and looking at ways that that could be managed. And um, again, proposed from 1 July 19, but that is not proceeding at this stage. I think probably the most divisive policy that um, has been uh, certainly attributed even indeed by Labor as partly contributing to the election loss, and that was the denial of refundable franking credits. And perhaps just to make a comment on this, because I, I do feel that the conversation about franking credits and, and the information that was being provided was in many cases misleading. And if we just go back to what it was designed to do, we go back to 1987 when Keating as Treasurer introduced the imputation system to remove double taxation. And I don't think anybody uh, agrees that we should reintroduce double taxation. We all accept that imputation works. But what Howard did in 2000 was take it a step further by introducing the refundable tax offset. Now, one of the often quoted lines throughout the Labor's election campaign was that if you didn't pay any tax, why should you get a gift? Why should you get an amount back from the government if you had not paid that amount in the first place? And I think it just warrants a brief explanation as to why that amount was being refunded. Once the dividend is paid out to the shareholder, you then need to look at the marginal tax rate of the shareholder. And if their marginal tax rate is higher than the corporate tax rate, they pay top-up tax, and that was never in question, and that was always going to remain the case. But if the marginal tax rate of the shareholder is below that of the corporate rate, then under the current law, they are entitled to a refundable tax offset. And what that does is restore the tax rate applying to the dividend as being that of the shareholder rather than that of the company. Now, leaving aside taxpayers like tax-exempt entities, there are really two main groups of taxpayers who receive refundable franking credits. One is the genuine low income earner and the other is the self-managed fund that is in pension phase. Typically not the large funds because they have enough other members in accumulation phase that they have a tax liability. Now the genuine low income earner was one that surprised me because although Labor announced a pensioner guarantee, so anybody receiving a government allowance or pension was not going to be affected by their measure, that did not extend to a genuine low income earner who was not in receipt of a government pension or allowance. 
And so, interesting Labor, the party that's there for the worker, was actually going to be denying refundable franking credits to low-income earners, and yet still continue to provide the full franking credit to those who are high-income earners. But really, this whole debate was about the self-managed fund. And it's because of the current policy we have, whereby the income derived by a superannuation fund, where the assets are held for paying a pension, that current policy of tax-free pension income gives rise to the outcome that they're currently entitled to claim any refundable franking credits. Now, it's a philosophical question as to whether that policy should be changed, but I really felt that throughout this whole election campaign, refundable franking credits were being blamed for the current policy we have on the tax-free pension income. And Michael, just to wrap up this part of the conversation, I think it can be explained in this very simple manner. If I'm a genuine low income earner, and I earn my income from rent or interest or business income or salary and wages for my labour, we accept that if I'm under the tax-free threshold, I should pay no tax. But what Labor was proposing is that if I earn my income by way of a dividend, because I hold an equity, a share in a company, then the minimum tax rate would be, leaving aside the base rate entity rules for the moment, a minimum tax rate of 30%. And it's hard to see why one type of income should be taxed any differently to any other form of income. So, look, for the time being, uh, certainly under the coalition government, they're not going to be getting rid of refundable franking credits, but I just think it was a fascinating conversation that's taken place over the last six to 12 months. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much, Robin, for explaining this. Um, I would like to pick your brain a bit later, uh, towards the end of the show, about um, how you see political debate um, progressing in regard to policymaking. Um, was it a bit oversimplified, probably, both sides of politics presenting their case? But we'll leave that to later. More interesting, everyone at the moment, wherever I go to train, every public practitioner that I go to and speak to asks me, OK, so the coalition has a resounding win and probably has the numbers to now govern the country for the next three years. What are we expecting in terms of tax? What are the changes other than the personal income tax cuts? Mind you, the personal income tax cuts are a large item. I would really appreciate it if you could walk us through it. Sure. Look, there's been a bit of commentary that there really wasn't much on the coalition policy offering other than the personal tax cuts. And certainly that was the mainstay of their election campaign um, from a tax perspective. That was, of course, uh, announced in this year's budget. And I'll chat about that in a moment. But as you'll see when we go throughout these other measures, there's actually quite an ambitious agenda with a range of other measures that remain announced and unenacted. So uh, it's not just confined to the personal tax cuts. We have got a number of other measures. But let's go into the personal tax cuts. Last year, they enacted a series of tax cuts which are being delivered in three stages. Now, stage one is already in place from 1 July 2018. Two further stages are already enacted and they kick in from 1 July 2022 and 2024. A reminder to all our listeners that that is an act of law. So for that to change, despite it being beyond the next election, they actually would need to have amending legislation. I'm suggesting if the government wanted to change it further, or indeed if uh, the Labor formed government at the next election and they wanted to change things, they would need to pass legislation to make any changes. So in terms of what the government is offering, for this current year, 1819, they want to increase the low and middle income tax offset from its current starting point of $200, where it phases in up to a maximum amount of $530. 
They wish to increase it to a $255 starting amount, increasing up to a maximum of $1,080. Now, interestingly, because it's an offset, we haven't seen this in play yet. It was going to be provided to eligible taxpayers for 1819 once they start lodging their 2019 tax returns. The issue is that because we've got uh, legislation that has yet to be enacted and we've got a question mark over whether there will be any sitting days prior to June 30, it's becoming um, a very much a, a time-based issue as to whether or not we're going to see those changes go through this side of June 30 or the other side. So at the moment, we don't know. The ATO has said that if the tax cuts for 1819, that is that increase in the offset, does get enacted prior to 1 July 19, then once returns start being lodged from 1 July 19 onwards, then they can just administer it in the normal way. So as tax returns are lodged, they will assess the, the taxpayer and apply the offset as part of that assessment process. However, if the government cannot secure the passage of that legislation until after 1 July 19, the ATO said that they will automatically amend assessments and individuals will not need to lodge another tax return or seek an amendment from the tax office. It does mean that we potentially have large numbers of amended returns, depending on when the legislation goes through and how many people would lodge their returns before that legislation is amended. So it could get a little bit messy, but certainly nobody would be denied the opportunity to receive that offset just because the legislation isn't enacted by June 30. That's interesting. Do you think there's any scope for a very short sitting, just uh, legislating the low and middle income tax offset on its own? Or do you believe that will be bundled together with the larger personal tax cuts that have been proposed? Look, as far as I'm aware, the government is adamant that they have a single policy of providing tax cuts, which does comprise at a micro level increase in the low and middle income tax offset, as well as increasing the thresholds further down the track. So that would be lifting the threshold from 90,000 up to 120. So I'll rephrase that, Michael, because that one's already enacted. Um, as well as increasing the 41,000 threshold up to 45,000, and that's 1 July 2022. And then 2024, they're proposing reducing the 32.5% down to 30%. Labor has said they will support the increase in the offset, but they don't support the other changes. Now, if the government is not prepared to split the bill, they may find themselves having difficulty passing the measures through the one bill. Now, that, of course, depends on how friendly the Senate's going to be. So this is something we really need to watch and wait over the next few weeks, but it's going to be an interesting one. Robin, walk me through it. Um the personal income tax cut for the 32.5% marginal rate here going to 30%. That would work very nicely with our um, Division 7A changes. It takes away a bit the harshness of the um, amended measures as, as they have been announced. Um, what have you heard about Division 7A? Division 7A is one of these uh, proposed reforms that we are still waiting to see exactly what's going to happen. And I want to remind our listeners that it's now been seven years. And I take you back to 2012 when the then Labor government commissioned the review of Div 7A. Now, in that seven-year period, we have seen 
a report delivered to the government, the report released to the public. We've seen the start date of the reforms uh, deferred twice from its original start date of 1 July 18, then to 1 July 19, and now to 1 July 2020. And whilst we have a discussion paper from Treasury released last October, it's going to be interesting to see if what we see in the form of draft legislation, hopefully sometime later this year, but it could be early next year, takes on the form of what Treasury provided in its discussion paper last October, or whether it's going to have any uh, differences in it. We know from our talking to our clients that there are large numbers of taxpayers that are going to be affected by this. The quarantine loans from pre-4th of December 97, the quarantine GPEs from prior to 16 December 2009, 25-year loans moving to 10-year loans, a proposed 14-year amendment period, a self-correction mechanism, the removal of the distributable surplus concept. These are all proposals. So we're very, very keen to see the proposed measures in a legislative form. But then, of course, Michael, once the bill hits Parliament, it is always subject to amendments in the Senate. So the final form of these rules and whether we will see any further deferral of the start date beyond 1 July 2020, uh, I wish I had a crystal ball right now. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? Thank you very much, Robin. Um, I th Robin, just let me know, if you don't mind, um, what, what does that mean specifically for our practitioners out there at the moment who are preparing for those changes? What would your advice be? Work away, chip away at those pre-09 UPEs and the pre-97 loans. Um, just monitor them. I think that would be the very minimum. What, what, what is the feedback that you hear out there every day? Look, bear in mind these... Pre-97 loans have been around for more than 20 years now. And if they're genuine loans, they really should be being repaid or attempted to be repaid. Now, of course, the priority in the last two decades has been dealing with the post-97 loans, the ones that do attractive 7A. So it's going to be a question of uh, available cash flow, but ideally they should be being reduced. Um, it's also important to bear in mind that when the shareholder eventually dies, these loans have to be dealt with at that point Anyway, so this is not a permanent deferral, um, but they certainly are quarantined under the existing legislation. Look, what should taxpayers do? I think for many, they're just sitting and waiting to see what comes. There's certainly no action needed at the moment. And as long as they're managing their Div 7A loans that uh, do attract implications under those provisions, uh, there is no need at the moment to actually repay or to, to pay down those quarantined arrangements. Another item, and I checked the date the other day as I was planning out my week, and I noticed that the 23rd of May came and went, 24th of May 2018 to 23rd of May 2019. The superannuation amnesty, that came and went. What are your thoughts? It came and went and it never saw the light of day. So... Look, this was announced by the ATO, uh, in fact, when I was at a, a conference uh, with CPA Australia uh, this time last year. And it was designed to encourage, of course, employers to come forward and, and there would be various uh, incentives such as tax deductibility and, and the waiving of the $20 admin fee and also the Part 7 penalty. Look, the 23rd of May has passed. The legislation currently remains technically before the Senate, but that bill will lapse once the next Parliament resumes in the next few weeks. And um, look, that could be as far as August, but let's assume it's the next few weeks. I think we've really got to look at the two types of employers that are involved here. There are those that did come forward and made disclosures during the amnesty period. 
And I've got some very recent figures from the ATO that in the past year, 21,000 employers have voluntarily come forward and lodged SG statements. I think the key message for those employers is if any of the, uh, the agents looking after those employers uh, assisted them through the process of making those voluntary disclosures, they should go back to them and, and just have a conversation to understand that the outcome these taxpayers are going to get under the law is the one that they actually expect. And what I mean by that is hopefully when the disclosures were made, it was understood that this was a proposed amnesty and that there was no guarantee this would become law. And without it becoming law, the ATO cannot provide a tax deduction for these payments. However, there is a practice statement 2011-28, and that states that if an employer makes a voluntary disclosure, in other words, they get to the ATO before the ATO gets to them, the Part 7 penalty is remitted in full. And so it would uh, now be uh, appropriate for us to turn our attention to the employers that haven't come forward. If an employer was thinking about making a disclosure and they're waiting to see whether the amnesty would or would not become law, whether it becomes law is a matter for the government, and this is going to be uh, an, an issue where we're going to have to wait and see whether they decide to resurrect the measure, but it would require a fresh bill before Parliament, and if that occurred, would they extend the period that the amnesty runs? Again, crystal ball gazing, we have to wait and see, but I think that unlikely at this stage. So anyone with a, a client who should have come forward and hasn't, and we know out there there is a, a lot of non-compliance. Uh, again, I've got a figure from the ATO that in the 15-16 year, the SG gap, that is the difference between the contributions that were required to be paid under the law and those that should have been paid under the law, is around $2.79 billion. And that's an awful lot of superannuation that should have gone into employee super funds that hasn't. So the message is that if you have a client who hasn't come forward, you are going to get a better deal on penalties than if the ATO finds you later. The ATO has also advised me that in the past 10 months, I'm talking from the 1st of July 2018 to the 30th of April this year, they have run 22,883 compliance cases. So just under 23,000 audits have been conducted. That's quite a significant number. And this has given rise to $634 million worth of SG liabilities being raised. Once STP kicks in fully, single-touch payroll, of course, then this is going to provide the ATO with much better data matching capability and profiling of employers. And it's going to provide them with even greater transparency. So certainly the message is uh, now's the time to talk to clients. If they need to come forward and make a disclosure, they won't get any tax deductibility of the payment, but they are very likely, um, and in fact the practice statement confirms that if they come forward and make a disclosure, they will be able to secure a remittance of the Part 7 penalty. Talking about superannuation amnesty, um, we have to consider as well that directors obviously personally liable for any unpaid superannuation amounts. What is at the moment on the agenda in regard to director liability, director penalty notices? Because I'm aware there's a couple of changes um, sitting there waiting to be enacted. Yes, that's right. Look, for many, many years, the director penalty notice, which is in Division 269 in Schedule 1 to the Tax Admin Act, 
and that links to Division 268, which deals with the estimates regime, where the ATO can issue an assessment based on an estimate of an outstanding amount. These provisions were all confined to the PAYG withholding rules. But uh, in recent years, we've actually had those measures also extend to the SGC amounts. So a director could be personally liable for both unpaid PAYG withholding of a company and also the SGC liabilities. But there was a bill before Parliament which has now formally lapsed with the calling of the election because it was sitting before the House of Reps. And this bill proposed to extend both the estimates regime and the director penalty notice regime to include unpaid amounts of GST, luxury car tax and wine equalisation tax. Now, the latter two are perhaps not on people's radar as much, but unpaid amounts of GST in a company is really significant if that now becomes personal liability for the directors. Now, these measures were due to start from the first day of the quarter, starting after royal assent of the bill. Uh, so it was always going to be a prospective start date. Um, but I would expect those measures to be reintroduced in the, uh, the weeks and months ahead. And again, it will um, provide a greater impetus for directors of companies to make sure that the companies are paying the debts they should be. Temporary reprieve, but not a long-term deferral. That's a very interesting outcome. Absolutely. Just going back to superannuation briefly, there was another raft of superannuation changes that were announced as part of budget night last year. Um, some of them were actually long overdue in, in some form or, or aspect. Um, what, what is happening to these? We, we're talking about uh, shortfall exemption certificates for high income earners who have multiple employments, the number of members in the superannuation fund, and last but not least, the three yearly audit cycle, the famous three yearly audit cycle. What right. is happening with these measures? So we've got three different measures and they all have different status at the moment. So we'll start with the employees with multiple employers. This is a measure proposed to start from 1 July 18, where an employee with multiple employers uh, could be exceeding their concessional cap due to generous high salary income amounts being paid in the form of salary, where those mandatory SG amounts were causing them to exceed their concessional cap. Now, that particular measure is caught up in the same bill as the SG amnesty. So that is currently before the Senate, but it will lapse when the next parliament uh, commences. Um, clearly, the period to apply for one of these shortfall exemption certificates, which is applied for by the employee and given to the relevant employer, has now passed. So it's hard to see how this measure could have a retrospective start date because contributions have already been paid for the 18-19 year or soon will be. Uh, the second measure regarding the increase of the maximum number of members from four to six, this was proposed to start 1 July 2019. And this is an interesting one because this measure actually made its way into a bill. It was the Treasury Laws Amendment 2019 Measures Number no. 1 Act. And this bill was amended in the House of Reps before it moved on to the Senate and was then uh, later passed and enacted. Schedule 1 was removed from this bill and Schedule 1 was going to increase the number of self-managed fund members from a maximum of four to a maximum of six. So that means that the bill's been enacted without that measure in it. The reason that the bill was amended was that the Labor Party did not support this measure. The government at the time said, well, 
we don't agree with you and we're still committed to it, but we're not going to hold up the passage of this bill. So for now, we'll accept the amendment and we'll move on. But well, Judy, that... Sorry to interrupt. I just That's think right. in my life, it was probably the most important bill in Australian legal history, given that it had an, uh, a decrease in the litre limit for the concessional rate of excise on beer. So the bill needed to pass. There was no way around it. Oh, no you should never, never hold up a bill that has beer in it. Absolutely. <laughs> so... I'd expect that measure to be resurrected, um, particularly since they may well have this friendlier Senate and they may not need the opposition to pass this one. Um, but it's an interesting question. And as to why the measure was uh, probably removed from the bill, the opposition said they're opposed to it. They didn't explain why. But it may well have been tied up with the policy on the refundable franking credits. And if you can follow me through on this one... If you had a fund that was unable to claim the refundable franking credits because it's in pension phase, one way to get around that policy would have been to introduce some members into the super fund that were in accumulation phase. And that way the fund could return to a, a part taxable position and then, of course, be able to use some of the franking credits. Now, if you've got a limit of four members, you may not have been able to do that. If you can increase it to six then you may be able to introduce some accumulation members. So uh, there's certainly a theory during the rounds that the reason why that measure was opposed by Labor was because it might have been a way to circumvent the proposed policy which would deny refundable franking credits. All right, now the third superannuation measure, the proposed three-year audit cycle for self-managed funds proposed for 1 July 19. This never got beyond a consultation paper, so it's not actually a formally elapsed bill. It's a measure that was announced and never proceeded beyond a discussion paper. I, uh, there are a few in the profession who supported this. In fact, I'm struggling to think of any client I spoke to in the last year where they were in favour of this. Um, the idea was that it would save uh, the, the trustees some money by not having to pay for an audit every year. Uh, bear in mind that this came out of, I believe, Kelly O'Dwyer's office when she was still the assistant treasurer. Uh, she, of course, moved on to another portfolio and has not uh, decided to contest her seat in the recent election. So I'm wondering if it's just one of those policies that's sitting up in Canberra and uh, may just die, uh, die a slow death and will never see the light of day. I would not be surprised. I always uh, got the example from groups. If I asked my client what an expense was for three and a half years ago, the standard answer would be like, I don't know. You always sort my problems out. Please do it this time again as well and send me the bill afterwards. So um, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. Robert and Michael, isn't it something that was always going to encourage non-compliance? Because the longer you leave it for an auditor not be checking those accounts, then the longer the trustee has to do something that's outside the CIS Act or in breach of the CIS provisions. Absolutely. And I spoke to a lot of um, super fund auditors who said, well, what's the first task I have to do in the audit? Verify the opening balance. That is just that much harder three years after the fact. What if it doesn't verify? You've got a bit of a problem. And I think it's also worth mentioning that there were certain conditions that applied to be eligible for a three-year audit. And when you're on your eye down that list, many of them were quite common scenarios like admitting a member, paying, uh, starting up an income stream, running a limited recourse borrowing arrangement. So therefore, many self-managed funds would not have been eligible for it in any case. That's right. We will wait and see. But somehow I share your opinion that we will not see this measure again anytime in the future. Yes. Interesting outcome. Um, Robin, it is winter here in Australia. You know what that means? Foot is on again. If yes. you're in the eastern states, that means NRL. If you are down south, that means uh, footy, obviously, uh, AFL. And obviously the Cricket World Cup is on, on us. 
therefore an important question. What is happening regarding the taxation of the proceeds from an individual's fame or image? Budget night announcement in 2018. Um, the ATO obviously had some guidance in place, has already withdrawn that guidance in regard to the safe harbour rules. What is happening? Good question. Now, this measure was due to start 1 July 19 as well. Uh, the measure was that if an individual had income derived from the licensing of their fame or uh, image, so commercial exploitation by way of a license, for example, that income would have to be included in the accessible income of the individual whose image or fame was being exploited. That measure never made it past a consultation paper. So once again, it's a measure that hasn't actually lapsed. It just never progressed beyond that stage of a discussion paper. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see, is the government going to pick up on this policy and continue with it? I know that there are a number of accountants who have affected clients and they are unclear whether for 1 July 19 onwards their clients are going to be affected by this measure. So um, yet again we're going to need some clarification from the government on this one. And given that the Safe Harbour guidelines have been withdrawn by the ATO, what would you do in this case? Look, I think it would be a case of talking directly to the tax office. They can only administer the law as it is currently enacted. Uh, they can't contemplate uh, provisions that have not yet been created. Um, it may be a case of seeking some special tax advice or applying for a private ruling, but unfortunately we're in this uh, state of limbo at the moment and it's not ideal. I think we've got to remember that that ATO practical compliance guideline was withdrawn in contemplation of these measures becoming law. The measures haven't become law and yet the ATO guidance has been withdrawn, so it has left us in a, a bit of a vacuum. Unfortunately, that's a bit frustrating, but thank you, Robin. Um, good explanation. Now, let's say our cricketer says, you know what, I don't like the uncertainty of the Australian text landscape, and they have decided to move overseas. They get on the aircraft to the new market where they're going to be playing cricket. They had put the home for many years, their home on, on the market. Um, they arrive in their new home, are now a non-resident, and they have received the offer on their property. Budget night 2017, major changes were announced. What is happening in that field? All right, you're referring to one of my favourite topics, of course, the main residence exemption changes for foreign residents. So these measures were announced on the 9th of May 2017 with a proposed just over two-year transitional period, which brings us up to June 30, 2019, by which time the non-resident could sell their property in Australia and still apply the current law. That's if it was owned when the measures were originally announced. This measure has been before the Senate since the 19th of March 2018, so over a year. And it's one of these measures which I, together with a number of other advocates, uh, lobbied very heavily. I didn't have an issue with non-residents not getting the main residence exemption per se. My problem with this was the retrospective nature of it, and, and many recognised that the effect of these measures was going to treat these Australian expats who are non-residents for tax purposes in most cases, as having never lived in their properties. And one of the biggest issues I have with any government policy is where they make retrospective changes. Every taxpayer is entitled to apply the law as it stands at the time they enter into transactions or arrangements. And the most famous grandfathering we have is the pre-CGT asset. 20 September 1985. If policy changes, we will generally have grandfathering of existing arrangements for that very reason. But on this particular policy, there was no grandfathering. Now, the bill itself 
is actually still before the Senate and as a result will lapse in the coming weeks or months, assuming we are sitting well before August, um, with the resumption of Parliament. So currently that bill does remain before the Senate. I want to read you... I won't read you anything, I'm going to tell you. It's got that. <laughs> I want to make reference to some remarks made by the former Assistant Treasurer Stuart Robert. And it's just worth noting that in the recent reshuffle by uh, Scott Morrison, he has replaced Stuart Robert, the Assistant Treasurer, with Michael Sucker. Now, earlier this year, Stuart Robert as Assistant Treasurer was responding to some questions at a, uh, a conference of the Tax Institute National Convention down in Hobart. When he was asked about changes to the tax treatment of income being distributed from a testamentary trust out to minors, the minister replied, sometimes things get announced and don't get progressed and it's just best to leave it that way. And then a short time later, he was asked about this measure, the main residence exemption, and he replied, go back to my previous comment. Now, that is a change of events, definitely. It is a change of events. Now, the bill is about to lapse. Stuart Robert is no longer Assistant Treasurer. We're going to have this incoming government with a potentially new agenda as to what they're going to legislate and progress with. So, in short, we don't know what's going to happen, but it is possible that these measures could be resurrected again, in which case we would be very keen to see uh, ideally a fresh round of consultations so that perhaps a fairer outcome for Aussie expats can be built into these measures. But as they stand at the moment, current law applies. You still get the six-year absence rule. You're still entitled to reset the cost base to market value when you first rent the property. And there is no June 30, 19 deadline by which any of these expats or non-residents need to sell their properties. But we're going to be watching very keenly in the weeks and months ahead to see whether this measure is resurrected. Thank you very much, Robin. I, th I think this is a crucial one for us because uh, many taxpayers just wouldn't have the records of their interest payments, rates payments, repairs, which they did on the property 20 years ago. So we would really hope that the government gives us some certainty around these measures very, very soon. And yet, ironically, one of the reasons why they didn't want to run with a couple of suggestions I had, which was either to prorate the days for the period you were a resident versus the period you're not, or to reset the cost base to market value when you become a non-resident, is they were concerned about increased record keeping for taxpayers. But that fails to recognise that under the proposal that's still before the Senate, absolutely right, you'd have to uh, reconstruct your records going back to the date you bought it, which could be as far back as 33, 34 years ago. Yeah, interesting outcome. Obviously, we are accountants and we keep record of everything, so accountants would be all right. It's our clients that we consider. <laughs> we hope. Robin, R&D. R&D is obviously a field that we want Australia to excel at. Um, uh, it's, it's a very attractive uh, field of business to be in. Changes have been announced with recognition towards the base rate entity concept and the likes, and also to further encourage R&D in large companies. If you don't mind, just walk us through what's on the plat, what's on offer here, and what do we expect since changes were supposed to start on 1 July 19? All right, the bill is a mouthful. It's the Treasury Laws Amendment, making sure multinationals pay their fair share of tax in Australia and other measures bill 2018. So once you've digested that mouthful, buried in that, in Schedules 1 to 3, are proposed changes to the R&D tax incentive. 
Now, these were announced as part of the 1819 federal budget, so that was last year's budget, following a 2016 review of the rules. And they were going to reform the measure so that instead of just claiming your 43.5% offset, and that depends, of course, whether you're a large or a small company, it was going to be based on a premium added to your corporate tax rate, which would depend on whether you're a base rate entity or you're not. Now, the measures were due to start 1 July 18, but this particular bill was introduced into the House of Reps last year, that is uh, September, and didn't progress beyond the House. So that bill has formally lapsed with the issuing of the election writs. Um, and once again, we're waiting to see, will this measure be resurrected? And if so, would the start date be retrospective to 1 July 18, or would it be a later date? Thank you, Robin. Um, again, we would hope for a resolution as soon as possible. So please do your advocacy, do whatever you can do to get this across the line if, if there's any hope to give us some certainty for our taxpayers. Other items that were announced on Budget Night 2018 Everett assignments, um, they still have their use, some are here and there, but where they are used, obviously they are big item, uh, big, big tax impact is expected. What can you tell us about Everett assignments? All right, so for those that um, haven't dealt with these in practice, an Everett assignment named after Mr Everett and Everett's case of uh, around 1980, this is about assigning your interest in the income or capital of a partnership to another party. Now, the government was concerned that some Everett assignments were taking place where the assignee was not actually becoming a partner in the partnership, but was receiving a right to income or capital. And that was uh, being considered as an alienation of income of the original partners. So it was proposed that from the 8th of May 2018, which was budget night last year, that measures would uh, deny access to the small business CGT concessions where Everett assignments had been undertaken, where the assignee did not actually become a partner in the partnership. Now that measure got as far as exposure draft legislation, so it never actually made it as a bill before Parliament. So technically the measure hasn't lapsed, but yet again it's one of these announced but unenacted measures. We're waiting to see what the government does with this one. Another item that I have on my list is vacant land, land banking. We obviously know um, that can be a very attractive strategy and there were big announcements regarding this in, during Budget Night 2018. What can we expect there? Right, the vacant land measures. So this was a proposal from 1 July 19 that taxpayers would not be able to claim deductions for the cost of holding vacant land. Now, this particular measure made as far as uh, exposure draft legislation. So as a result, again, it's not formally a bill and has not actually lapsed. Um, but we're very keen to see whether or not the measure progresses. And if it does, again, is it going to be a 1 July 19 start date? One item that was mentioned on Budget Night 2018 was that we would be limited to making cash payments to anyone who's carrying on a business. $10,000 was set as a bit of a benchmark right there. It has been awfully quiet after this announcement, even though we were all surprised and there was a bit of discussion around this measure in uh, public practice. What can you tell us about this? All right, this is a measure that uh, was modified in terms of its start date. It was originally going to be 1 July 19. Now it's proposed to be 1 January 2020. And this is where if you pay any more than $10,000 for goods or services, it will not be able to be made in the form of cash. It would have to be by cheque or electronic payment, um, which has always intrigued me as to how that's actually going to be enforced. But maybe that's a conversation for another podcast. 
in, far, in terms of the proposal, this was a discussion paper and that was released around May of last year. There's been nothing further on this other than to delay the start date by six months. So uh, once again, we're waiting to see whether the government is going to progress this measure, uh, what will be the form of the measure and will it still proceed on the 1st of January next year? Wherever I go, um, groups ask me about the Harding case. Mr Harding changed his residence and his wife's in a very short time span. But more importantly, it's known as a landmark case around residency. And we did have some announcements from the Board of Taxation regarding our residency rules. Obviously, we have copied them pretty much from the British many, many years ago. The Canadians, the Kiwis used a similar definition of a tax resident. What can you tell us about this? And is there some hope for simplification of our residency rules? Oh, gosh, we hope so, because the extent of litigation and the difficulty practitioners have in determining whether someone's a resident, um, the fact that Harding has gone through federal and now full federal court and different outcomes have come out of both of those courts. Um, that is why it's currently before the High Court in terms of a special leave application and we're waiting on the High Court to determine whether or not they will grant that special leave to the Commissioner. The review of the residency rules is currently being undertaken by the Board of Tax. They have issued an interim report, but we are awaiting their final report and, of course, a government response. And I think many taxpayers and their advisors would uh, embrace what they're referring to as a bright line test, a more straightforward test based on days where either you're in the country or you're out of the country for at least 183 days, and that would be supported by a secondary test. Um, as you say, these rules stem back to common law concepts from hundreds of years ago in the UK. We need a modernised and contemporary way of applying these provisions to the, the modern global worker, which is um, epitomised by Mr Glenn Harding. Thank you. Um, we hope to get, to get an update on this soon. Do we have a target date for the High Court case? No, I don't have a ruling. I don't have information on when their special leave application is going to be heard. Um, and, of course, if they do grant special leave, then we've still got to have the court case itself before the High Court. So I suggest we're probably still a few months away from knowing what's going on there. The same message as per usual, unfortunately. As soon as Robin's crystal ball will give us a result, we will let you know. Oh, it's a valuable piece of kit. I know. I wish I could um, see further into it. How lovely would that be? Robin, thank you very much for covering all of these measures and... I think the bottom line here is a lot of uncertainty. We, we want certainty in the tax system. Um, now, taking that back to the election outcome and, and the way the election was conducted, what can we expect, taking a step back, what can we expect going forward, not just in terms of legislation that's immediately before the parliament or that was announced, in general, in regard to policy making, what, what items would you expect us to look out for and, and do you expect that there's a bit of a change in the future around campaigning probably going away from headline items like um, pensioner tax versus a gift towards a more um, fundamental and, 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 and technical discussion what do you think will, the future will have in store for us broadly? A good question. There is no doubt that both sides of politics in this campaign used spin. When Labor spoke about the gift of the refundable franking credit when they're not paying tax was 
an interesting interpretation of what that offset is. Similarly, the government's description of the retiree tax, when it wasn't actually a new tax, it was actually just a case of denying the refundable franking credits to self-managed funds. But when you've got election campaigns running, they will use whatever terminology they can to get their message through. What I take away from this campaign is it reinforces yet again how virtually impossible it is for any opposition to introduce taxes or impose the, the tax take from that position of opposition. So if we go back through the history books, when Hawke and Keating introduced CGT, FBT, imputation, foreign tax credit system, etc., they did so from a position of government. When Hewson attempted to introduce the GST in 1993, that infamous birthday cake interview with Mike Willisey, of course, was his downfall, and he lost the unlosable election. And you may recall uh, Keating's response at the time was, uh, this is the sweetest uh, win of them all, or sweetest election result of them all, whatever his exact words were. Um, if we then fast forward to Howard, he said in his first term of government, there will never ever be a GST in this country. But then he went to the next election saying, if you re-elect me, I will introduce a GST. But he did so cleverly by introducing tax cuts at the same time that he introduced the GST. So the public said, OK, we get we're going to be paying GST for the first time, but we also get that we're going to be getting some tax cuts. And so the electorate in the main was sold. So when the GST was actually introduced, it was introduced following an election, but Howard was already in government. Fast forward to 2019, Labor had a very ambitious agenda. They were trying to do an awful lot and make a lot of policy changes, but doing so from opposition. And many were concerned that there wasn't a clear message and the space got cluttered. And if people don't understand a new tax, they are not going to vote for it. So really the best place to make those sort of significant reforms is going to be from government, not from opposition. So we'll see what the opposition does in the next term. Um, it looks like they're going to be headed up by uh, Anthony Albanese, who's been uh, elected as leader unopposed of the Labor Party, and we're going to see where he takes their direction in the next few years. Back onto the government, they have a friendlier Senate, it would seem, and so aside from the personal tax cuts, we really need to understand of more than 80 announced but unenacted measures, proposed measures that have not yet gone through, where does the government stand on this? There is an imperative for the government in the weeks and months ahead to prioritise where they stand on each of these measures. It's no good saying, look, this is what's enacted and we go forward from there. We need to know where we stand on all those previous measures. And typically, an incoming government would release a stock take and then run us through and say, look, of these 80-odd measures, we are going to proceed with this many we're going to abandon or not proceed with this many and the remainder we will go back to a fresh round of consultation or continue to consult. So I think that's where we're at. Um, as to what all this looks like, um, it may be that uh, Morrison is not just in for a single term, it could be a uh, two or three term Morrison government. We obviously hope for the best, hope for some clarity and that our life in public practice will be made a bit easier. Certainly though, it will be a very interesting time ahead. Look, I think Michael is a, a final comment. 
the loss of labour this time round has certainly saved us from a significant amount of lobbying um, in respect of some of those measures such as the $3,000 limit on accounting fees and um, some other measures where there may have been some concerns. So uh, we get back onto the job of waiting for normal measures to be uh, progressed and, and we'll see how we go in the next few years, but at least uh, we don't need to lobby on measures like that one. We look forward to that and also we want to highlight we don't want it too easy as an accountant. Um, it keeps life interesting every day if there's a bit of uncertainty. <laughs> Absolutely. Vested interest. That's right. Robin, thank you so much. It's been a very interesting chat with you. Thank you very much for your insight. And I would like to say at this point in time as well to our listeners on the line, thank you very much to, for listening to this episode of TaxEc. If you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review the show where you are because it'll help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at techbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at techbanter.com.au forward slash banter dash blog, as well as other valuable resources on our TextBanter website. We look forward to you joining us next time. Again, thank you very much, Robin, and thanks very much to our listeners for listening. You're welcome. Cheers. Cheers.